Section 24 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 3, Chapter 1, Part 1. 1. Joanna reached London on a Friday late in June. She was met at Euston Station by Georgie and carried enthusiastically off to her sister's beautiful, hygienic home in the garden suburb. Without and within the house was all green and white. It suggested some very pleasant kind of institute rather than a personal dwelling place. Nevertheless, its mistress had caused the name Duntarvi to be painted in clear letters upon the gate. Joanna Dolly admired everything. But sincere as was this admiration of Joanna's, it was in no degree of the covetous sort, and at breakfast on Saturday the elder sister was provoked to a considerable exasperation by the quiet obstinacy displayed by the younger on the subject of lodgings. It was not, she complained, as if Joanna could give any definite idea of what she did want. Why then should she be so positive in her refusal even to look at the rooms her brother-in-law had kindly bespoken for her? rooms green and white like Georgie's own, and so nice and near in a new era boarding house opened only a week ago by one of Max's enterprising friends. Joanna sat accused of prejudice by both Max and Georgie, but in vain, for she admitted it and she did not see the new era rooms. And after a luncheon she gave Georgie the slip and within an hour, as if by instinct, found herself in the region of Mayfair. There she strolled about, ravished by glimpses of the green park and deeply pleased with all she saw. Here was the old order, beautiful and old established. A little dead, perhaps, at the core. Georgie would certainly have called it rotten, yet still by Joanna unpossessed. And what a finely greened, modest surface it presented. Here, surely, was the London of Lewis. Its appearance was extraordinarily touching to her. Here she could have walked, thought she, all the afternoon and evening, seeing her lover on every hand, could have walked for the sheer enjoyment of looking and finding him, for that she should find in this Mayfair rooms for herself seemed scarcely a possibility. Lewis had warned her, laughing that she would most likely have to be content with Maida Vale or Kilburn or West Hampstead, and he ought to know he himself lived at Camden Hill, Mayfair, indeed. It was at this very moment that Joanna drew level with a break in the low line of shops which now ran opposite. The break was caused by a square, rather wide archway which gave vent between the shops while leaving the dwelling houses above intact. That is to say, it carried a room directly over it. Joanna stopped and stared intently. It was a room, surely enough. It had an old jutting window which was bare of curtains, and in that window all Joanna's dreams of a lodging in London were immediately crystallized. She crossed the road with a wildly beating heart. She was still in Mayfair, but had slipped in her wanderings into one of those little colonies of working people which are a distinguishing feature of fashionable London. The more prohibitive the quarter, the more certain one may be of finding such a dependence tucked away in it. And very often, as in the case, it will happen that the dependence retains a living dignity and a gaiety which have sometimes since departed from the greater houses of the neighborhood. 
Here there was a smell of mews, and sounds of various business came forth from the court to which Joanna's archway gave entrance. Beneath the flat-faced old brick houses, the shops looked neat and prosperous, and shone with an attractive, light-hearted sort of respectability. On the left-hand corner of the archway, an open fruit stall spread itself like a downturned fan that had been painted in bright, triangular sections, green and red and yellow. On the right-hand corner was an undertaker's. Next door was a saddler's. But it was upon the undertaker's that Joanna concentrated her attention. For in this window, positively as if created by her strong desire, a card was displayed. It advertised, two unfurnished rooms to let, apply five, chapel court. Several times over, Joanna read this notice, and now all her longing was to discover whether one of the two rooms might be that above the archway. But so fearful was she of disappointment that she remained a full minute nerving herself for it. She stared at the card at the discreetly elegant urn of polished stone against which the card was propped, at the three words, funerals, cremations, embalmings, which engraved in gilt upon some oak paneling formed a chaste background for the urn, clearly a superior sort of undertaker's this. Here were no brittle but imperishable wreaths under glass shades, no vaunting that pinking and kilting were done on the premises, no china scrolls bearing in black lettering the motto, Lost but not forgotten. Reformed funerals was a recitant announcement across its plate glass front, and the dark gray urn, veined with a yet darker gray, was the only decoration. Her courage in hand, Joanna entered Chapel Court and looked round it. How Lewis would approve of this. Some children played across the cheerful paved slope, which was raised on one side above the level of the few little shops so that one would have to go down two or three steps to enter them. They were very small shops, like toy ones, a little news vendors, a little barbers, a little public house called the bird in hand. A washing fluttered from a sort of roof garden where somebody had every reason to be proud of the petunias, perhaps still more of the nesteriums. And the room over the archway had a window looking into the court as well. If only, if only she might show it as her own to Lewis on Monday. For till Monday she was not to see him. He was out of town till then, and it was a relief. On the threshold of her new life in London, such a trembling had taken her. Lewis in Glasgow, she knew. But would Lewis in London be the same man? Would he find her the same woman? Much, he felt, depended on their first meeting. Suppose it were unfortunate one of their failures. Suppose in London he no longer liked the look of her. Coming along the streets that afternoon, she had been studying the woman with an almost painful concentration of inquiry. They had a look, a something that she lacked, and she felt sure her lover admired that something. If only she were certain, quite certain of what he felt for her. As she searched for number five in the court, she recalled carefully the last talk between them. Do you love me? she had asked, and in the pause that followed would gladly have withdrawn her question. But it was uttered now, no help for it, and she had waited miserably furious with herself and with him. 
I believe I do. Worse luck for me, he had said at length, giving her a quick, troubled glance. But you needn't ask what I feel for you, Joanna. You must know all perfectly well. It was not the answer she hungered for, but she was thankful he had not simply replied with an impatient, of course I do. And there had been a ring of rueful truth in his worse luck for me. But now she had found the door she wanted, a neat, moss-green door tucked away up three crooked steps in a corner. She knocked, waited, and at length heard the heavy, careful feet of a child coming down the stair inside. It must be a very steep stair, thought she. The next moment the door was cautiously opened and a very little boy, wearing a notably clean holland tunic, stood in the narrow aperture looking up at her. Joanna looked down at him with eyes almost as grave as his own, and as she looked she hoped very much that he would like her. His curious seriousness, and indeed his whole small person, was attractive to her. And this so there seemed to be something indefinably wrong with his proportions. He was not deformed, but his head looked too large for his rather dwindled limbs, a fault which was accentuated by the unusual thickness of his brown hair. And there was a look of premature intelligence in his gray, starry eyes, seldom to be seen in the eyes of a child who is not crippled. I saw the card in the window, said Joanna. Is anyone at home? It took the little fellow a few moments to collect himself. He had a slight hesitation in speech, but the words when they came, saving that he could only pronounce the as if a, were exquisitely enunciated. My father is out, he said, and my mother is out. My sister and I are at home. Mother said she would be back very soon indeed. She is just starting out to the chemist. Joanna smiled. Perhaps, thought she, his mother is a bird. The child himself, with his small figure squeezed between the barely open door and the jam, looked not unlike a nestling whose wings are still absurd where flight is concerned. Do you think I could come in and wait till mother comes back? she asked. I think so, certainly was the boy's well-considered reply, and when he had spoken, he widened the aperture where he stood and displayed a narrow, ladder-like stair covered with polished blue linoleum, spotless as his tunic. Joanna entered, marveling at his self-possession. He could not, she judged from his size, be more than six years old. I'm eight, he replied, however, to her question on this point, and my sister is twelve, but I am small for eight, he added stoically and she is very long indeed for twelve. Joanna asked him his name. It was Rodney Bannister. Moon, he told her, what she thought a very nice pretty name. And his sister, what was she called? She's called Miss Moon, said he. The visitor, feeling a rebuke in the perfect, bright gravity of this reply, asked no more questions. But as her host stumped manfully on his short legs up the stairs in front of her, he volunteered some further, as it were, pleasanter information. She's an invalid, he announced with great cheerfulness. Would you like to see her? She's been moving her head so nicely today, and when she opens her mouth I'm allowed to put a little sugar in. Just a weeny, teeny grain, of course, or else it might choke her. A door on the landing above stood open, and Joanna, as she followed the boy wondering, had a glimpse of the little sitting room to which he was leading her. It was a room, saving that the rug before the fireplace was littered with fine, curiously shaped pieces of metal, tidied to a scrupulous degree. 
and more than tidy indeed, for there were durer prints hung with discrimination upon the plain, lavender walls, and an old diamond-paned bookcase stood opposite to the door, and in a corner also visible from the staircase was a happle-white music stand with a violin case beside it. But once she had entered, Joanna saw only a single object, and it was none of these. It was a thing that lay flat on its back in a wicker spinal carriage near the window. It was an unhappiness from which when one perceived it, it seemed wrong not to advert one's eyes, yet one had to look. So this was Miss Moon. Joanna looked and looked again. She was thankful to have seen with time for recovering herself before the mother's arrival, and she was studied by the unconcern of Miss Moon's brother. She had a fit this morning. He was saying, making polite conversation from where he was squatted on the rug and without looking up from his interrupted work of piecing together the parts of a Meccano. When she has a fit, white stuff comes out of her mouth. But my father says it isn't the sugar, really. My father says it's like froth, like what a horse gets on its bit sometimes. You see, he explains, summoning up. She's afflicted. That's what it is. Joanna, who had sat down in a little rocking chair, looked again at the stricken one by the window, and she looked this time differently. The boy's way of regarding his sister as a wonderful sort of live doll had curiously cleared and altered her vision. Her first horror was gone, and looking simply a child herself for the moment, she saw that the still face was beautiful. The close-cropped skull, its sharp temples so transparent and blue-veined, was shaped for splendor, and noble brows guarded the vacant, long-lashed eyes. In the piteous mouth alone was any trace of suffering visible. The clear eyes and forehead, the dilated nostrils, fragile as porcelain, had no recollection of the pain by which they had been purged into what they were. Miss Moon was like some seashell, delicately empty, cast high upon the beach, which it has taken the whole cruel ocean to blow into shape, to flute and carve and lave into a foam-like whiteness. Her long, surprisingly long body, could it be that she was only twelve, was covered by a Jaeger rug, and no movement showed anywhere saving, when the tapering, filigree fingers twitched, tinily convulsive on the woolly, fawn-colored stuff. At the sound of a latchkey downstairs, Joanna rose instinctively from the rocking chair. At being found here like this, she felt somehow guilty. That's my mother, quoth Rodney, undisturbed in his playing, if the word play could be applied to anything so intent as his occupation. And the next moment his mother entered. At first, in the rather dim light of the room, for a thunderstorm was gathering outside, and the sky had darkened within the last ten minutes to a threatening degree. Joanna took Trissy Moon to be a woman little older than herself, that is to say, some years under thirty. She was noticeably neat in figure, girlishly quick in movement, and her face with its dusky hair looped curtain-wise over her ears seemed very youthful in the shadow of a mushroom-shaped hat. Have you been waiting some time? I'm so sorry, she exclaimed with an exaggerated, slightly jarring brightness. She was your hostess apologizing for lateness to an invited guest. That nags man, you know, will talk and talk. All I wanted was to get Roddy's bottle refilled. 
but he would ask about Edwin, and were we going away at all this summer, though we couldn't go last, nor for that matter the summer before. For he has a brother-in-law, he says, who could give us very moderate rooms at Dimchurch, a man called Stab who plays the cello, and he thought Edwin and this man Stab, if only they could find a third, might get up some trios of an evening. It would certainly please Edwin. I'll tell him about it tonight, but I doubt if it could be managed. And all this time you've been waiting, she broke off. Well, I hope Sonny has done the honors. As the mother caressed her child's head with one hand, he ducking away from her impatiently, she took off her hat with the other, pressing her wrist against her brow a moment as if to placate a permanent ache there. And Joanna saw then how superficial had been that first impression of youthfulness. Miss Moon's face, with its small, almost infantine features, had been cruelly used by trouble in the years. Under the grayish skin there was a bruised look, the dull yellow and purplish marks of irreparable fatigue, and the tiny ruptured blood vessels of effort beyond recovery alone gave other color to her cheeks. Her eyes were strangely dilated, still more strangely smiling, as if to deny with their final glance that her life was a cord perilously stretched, near, ever so near to breaking point. On she talked with a rattling and consequent gaiety of Mr. Nags, the chemist, of Roddy, of Edwin, whom she took for granted, Joanna knew to be Mr. Moon and no other, of summer holidays in the long past and the highly debatable future. Very soon, her listener had to abandon any attempt at following the ins and outs of a tale, for the understanding of which in essential was some familiarity with the people and events so freely referred to by the teller. Instead, she used her energy to fight down the sensation she had of watching a sleepwalker who strayed along the precarious edge of a cliff. In time, however, by putting in a question now and then, she did gather that the rooms of her quest were empty through the perfidy of somebody or other. Edwin, the impractical, declared Miss Moon with a wild little laugh, had only lately abandoned his notion of turning the one upstairs into a music room, the one over the archway into. At this point, Joanna, overjoyed, succeeded in making an interruption. Was the room over the archway then really one of the two that were to be let? And if so, might she see it? Full at once of apologies, Miss Moon showed her the rooms in question and wanted to conduct her all over the house, but a glimpse was enough. Small the rooms were, but what did that matter? They were attractive in shape and had clear, distempered walls, upstairs gray over the arch white, and they were cheap while her landlady resumed her nebulous family history, determined to be impressive yet still more anxious to remain obscure, Joanna busied herself by furnishing her new quarters in thought. Upstairs she would sleep, over the arch would be her studio. To every one of Miss Moon's ambiguous suggestions about chairwoman, latchkeys, and the like, she replied that would do very well. Nor would she wait to see Mr. Moon, whose return from a professional engagement was expected at any moment. Rather, by the piecing together of evidence than from any definite statement, she had discovered that Edwin was employed in some important capacity by the undertaker downstairs. As she crossed the road again on her return, Joanna looked back at the archway and at her window above it. 
No dwelling in her experience. Not the house at Colisee Street. Not the brown villa at San Gervasio. Not the whitewashed farm of Duntarvi itself had been so dear to her as this was going to be, this place in London of her own finding. And on Monday she would bring Lewis. He should see. Kilburn, he had said. Maida Vale, West Hampstead. It was in Mayfair she would live and nowhere else. As her pleased eye passed to the window of the shop below, her lover's face, as she would see it in two days hence, rose vividly before her. So convenient, too, she could hear him speaking, could see the whimsical, affectionate twist of his lips. So very convenient you can be buried whenever you like. No longer had she the slightest fear of the coming meeting. Everything would be all right now, and she stood there in the middle of the road in Mayfair and laughed with satisfaction. In Joanna's life hitherto, no period had contained so prolonged a rapture of enjoyment as the six months that followed her entering into possession of the room above the archway. Lewis in London was better than Lewis in Glasgow in fifty ways. His spirits were both higher and more equable. He was kinder, yet at the same time far more passionate. And if he was also busier, telling her seriously each time they parted that his punctual appearance at their next tryst might be prevented by circumstances unforeseeable, this was largely balanced by two facts. One was the geographical fact of his nearness, the other the physical fact of her own entire freedom. There was a telephone downstairs in the undertaker's office at Chapel Court, by which means he would be able to warn her of any ordinary changes in his plans, and by this same means at certain hours of the day Joanna knew she could have speech of him at his club. But so far in these five months Lewis had never once failed her, and she had begun to doubt the possibility of such a thing happening. Neither had he been away from London longer than a couple days at a time, saving for two weeks during August, the two empty weeks which Joanna spent quite happily in Scotland with her mother and Lynette. From the very first, a fresh element of delight had entered their meetings. On the Monday after her arrival, she had flown confidently to the place appointed between them, and that evening had returned to Georgie, radiant as from a coronation. Lewis had betrayed extravagant gladness at seeing her, had been lost in admiration of Chapel Court and everything therein, had generously given her the credit not merely for finding it, but for a dozen charms he was the first to see there, had himself rediscovered the beauty of the Green Park and his delighted showing of it to her. To her joy, she had gone up instead of down in her lover's eyes by comparison with the London women whose rivalry she had feared. And in her eyes, his face in the new environment had acquired a fresh, peculiar quality of intimacy which was inexpressibly dear. By his glances and by many small, involuntary movements of guardianship as he piloted her about the streets and watched over her impressions, he seemed to acknowledge a responsibility she had not once thrust upon him. It warmed and established her to feel his real care for her happiness. It touched him to chivalry to see how simply that happiness was attained. He laughed at her childish jubilation over the furnishing of number five. Yet of the two it may be questioned whether he were not the greater child. 
He regarded both her and her house as his most exquisite playthings. And all these joys, this delicious newness of enjoyment, after nearly three years of love, were heightened by a season of surpassing beauty. A fine, very hot summer was succeeded by an even lovelier autumn, and every sunset seemed to participate in Joanna's elation. On the June morning when she went forth alone to buy her first chairs and tables, it would not have surprised her had half her consumed body been drawn up swiftly through space till it was lost in the life-giving, life-taking heart of the sun. A man passing along the gutter of Tottenham Court Road had boards hanging from his shoulders. The Lord himself, Joanna read thereon, shall descend from heaven with a shout. And instinctively, expectantly, she had looked skyward. There would need a god, no less, appearing in radiant omnipotence to comprehend such ecstasy as hers. And surely that god would wear the transfigured face of Lewis himself. Lewis had been better than his word. He had given her the world. London was hers like a jewel, and how easily she wore it. She was already at home, without shyness, in the Moon household, with a few instructions given by Carl and by Mildred. She had soon found she might enter almost any studio she pleased, by means of her cousin Irene. She could, if she chose, make the passage to more conventional society. And at the back of all of these manifestations of worldly fulfillment stood Lewis. But for Lewis, not one of the paths opened by circumstances would have profited her. Because of Lewis, she tripped along them with the light feet of success. And because of Lewis, she needed none of these paths at all. For worldly possession also is a spiritual achievement. It was four o'clock on a cold but fine afternoon in November when Joanna set out to pay her first call upon Cousin Irene. She had asked Georgie more than once to come with her, but Georgie had refused with bridal self-importance. She would think, said she, of leaving cards on Irene when Irene had been to see her. She, not Irene, was the new married wife. Besides, only let Joanna think for a moment of how Max compared in any scale of public importance with Irene's husband. Rising M.P. indeed, exclaimed Georgie in hearty scorn, that he may have been when Irene married him. I told Max that was what they called him in the Scotsman, but Max says he has done no more rising since then a piece of unleavened bread. For Joanna to go was quite different, Georgie allowed that. Indeed, she took to urging her younger sister to call and report. Irene's children, whose pictures she had seen in the illustrated papers, were apparently very pretty, but all girls, and at this observation Georgie had smiled mysteriously. It would appear that she herself had a foreknowledge of being the mother of sons. So Joanna, upon a day just five months after her arrival, had arrayed herself in her London clothes and betaken herself to Bryanston Square, where Irene's house was. It was now some time since she had acquired partly by the help of Lewis, still more by instinct, the outline of a fashionable young woman, and with that had come what she had so envied her cousin long ago, a free, self-contained assurance of manner. 
Yet on an occasion of this kind, she could not escape a half-amused consciousness of masquerading. She felt something of this now as she sailed gallantly up the very middle of her cousin's flight of steps and rang the bell. Surely the servant opening the door would see through her disguise. Or, if the servant should be deceived, Irene, with a glance, would strip her naked and expose her in her eradicable wildness. While she stood there, loosening her dark furs and glancing over her shoulder at the square, two men passed along the pavement. One was young, the other middle-aged with a fine worldly face and great pouches of well-survived dissipation beneath his keen eyes. Both looked up at her, and from head to heel she was sensible of their approval. As she watched their course to the corner a few yards off, glad that their courtesy forbade a backward glance, she knew as if she had heard their speech that when the elder turned his head to the younger it was to praise her. Then, masquerader or no, she was accepted by this London at its best. But even more than to her own success, Joanna at that moment had been alive to the attractiveness of the two men simply as male creatures, and here, strange as it may seem, was an experience unknown to her before coming to London. Till then, she had been penetrable only by an individual fascination. But now, in her awakened state so long deferred, all the tortured, sighing boys, all the cynical men of experience, all the world-weary elders might have taken her. It was by their ignorance alone that she went safe among them, or perhaps by the fact that in Lewis she possessed them all. Just as the two men went round the corner, the younger only then permitting himself a swift half-turn of the head in Joanna's direction, Irene's glossy double doors, which till this moment had confronted the visitor forebodingly, were flung wide with a great show of hospitality by two smiling, bestreamered maidservants. Just like Aunt Georgina's, thought Joanna, smiling but not without a shiver of the old terror as she passed in between them. She recollected a remark made recently by her cousin Mabel, that old house in Bryanson Square was but a reproduction brought up to date of the parental home in Edinburgh. It had been a crank of cranky old Lord Weddenmer's that two women and not the butler should attend the front door of a townhouse, and many a time poor Julie, gathering her brood about her skirts for the ordeal, had likened herself to that pilgrim whose way ran betwixt two lions. In the drawing room, Irene was combining the parts of hostess and mama before an audience of two women friends, and she afforded the vaguest of fashionable introductions to her cousin. Joanna found her less fluffy than of old and more substantial. The attractive frothiness had disappeared in favor of body, as it will with a glass of ale which has been let stand for a while. Indeed, with her fair hair and her dress of smooth yellowish satin, Irene might as well have conveyed the suggestion of a pale, full-bodied ale, had not Joanna from the first moment been constrained to ransack her small zoological memory for an analogy still more apt. A camel, that was it. Cousin Irene was like a camel, but she was like such an elegant, well-tended, and most lofty full-grown camel that Joanna, even while she laughed in secret, was impressed and rendered slightly nervous. The three children in their white embroideries and crisp ribbons had but that minute emerged from the nursery for inspection, and the sunny-haired cherub of a baby sat in Mama's silken lap and played with Mama's long amber necklace. They were sweet-looking little girls enough, 
but for the life of her, Joanna could not see them as other than elegant, well-tended little camels, just three camels like Mama, saving for that the moment they were blessed with youth, and her thoughts reverted with passionate preference to that other group of children she had come to love in Chapel Court. There was beautiful Edvina, whose soul was gone elsewhere. There was Roddy with his intent jewel-like eyes, and there was little Ollie Garland, a neighbor's child, round-faced and timorous, who came almost daily to play in number five while her mother sought a precarious foothold in Fleet Street. What had these three that was wanting in Irene's glossy babies? Wherein lay the essential difference, that it was not merely external, she felt sure, Convinced as Joanna was of her own correctness in all outward appearance, she felt exposed beneath the glances of Irene's friends, and even the children, or was this her fancy only, seemed to watch her closely and defensively, as they would have watched some being of another species. As for Irene herself, one could hardly be insensible to the curiosity, the hostility, the calculation of her traveling eyes. There it was. Joanna and her kind were different, and always would be different from Irene and Irene's kind, and she replied formally to Irene's perfunctory family inquiries. This difference became even more manifest. Joanna now possessed the world as Irene would never possess it, but for that very reason she could never be a part with its essence. But happening to introduce Pender's name into the flagging conversation, and seeing the quickening of interest in the faces of Irene and her guests, Cousin Mabel had also said that if Irene might not regard any given London celebrity as a friend, that celebrity must be at least the friend of a friend. Joanna's first conception of her difference contracted into a pettier defiance. Could it be that something in her looks had betrayed her secret? Of a certainty, she had not till this moment realized how increasingly during the past six months she had been forced into thinking of her love as an intrigue. With the flaming up of passion between herself and Lewis and the new environment had come the increased necessity for secrecy. Here he was among his friends. If Joanna wished to keep their happiness, she must guard it jealously, must measure its safety continually by the world's standards. It had been easy to blind herself to these exigencies by the very ardor with which Lewis had imposed them. Never had he showed himself so fearful of losing her, and was not that enough? But now as Irene went on to ask why Georgie had never called, and with a drawl accentuated to conceal a more genuine curiosity, put questions about Georgie's husband, clearly known by repute both to her and to her guests, Joanna had a swift, horrified glimpse of herself, rather as the world's prey than as its possessor. Was this the price demanded? A chasm of misery and shame seemed to open beneath her feet. As soon as she could, she rose and made her escape. Irene had announced her intention of calling upon Georgie within a few days, had accorded an invitation for one of her forthcoming events to Joanna. The visit was over. Once in the open air, she was happy again. It was as if she were rushing from Irene's doorstep to meet again her own palpitating and lovely existence, left there waiting outside in the street. 
The winter had followed early upon autumn. A beautiful day was expiring with the lighting of the lamps, and the young living woman drew the blue and gold freshness of the West End Square into her lungs with an access of vigor, which in itself was delight. She was going to meet Lewis in Piccadilly. They would walk a while and then return together to Chapel Court where supper was prepared. For a wonder, he had not only the late afternoon but all the evening free, and Joanna had strung Chinese lanterns across her archway room for welcome and delight. Again and again during the day, she had lived beforehand through that moment when the door would be shut on the outside world. Into that first embrace would go the emotion of her solitary morning's work, her strong attraction by the two passing men, her scorn of Irene, her tenderness for Ollie and Roddy, her voluptuous breathing of the elixir of London. Lewis should have them all. A clock struck half past four, and though her tryst was for a quarter past five, Joanna fell into a panic at the strokes of the bell and hailed a taxicab, asking the man to take her to the nearer end of Bond Street. After five months in London, she was still strangely ignorant of directions. Mention Regent Street to her, and she would see a wide current of sparkling shallows down which she had often gone in a gay, drifting from pavement to pavement, drawn now to one side, now to the other by the lure of shops on either hand. Speak of Trafalgar Square, and there would rise a great tilted expanse of stone, stone palaces full of treasures surrounding it, dazzling white clouds above it, a man walking past the iron railings of a church with a basket full of tulips on his head, yellow and scarlet tulips that had bright blue paper wound about their stems. Lewis had kissed her in Trafalgar Square, suddenly, unexpectedly, had kissed her in broad daylight, amid the sound of fountains, blown spray, the calling of the high children's voices. But put Joanna in Regent Street and ask her to point the way to Trafalgar Square, and she could not have done it. Set down, however, by her taxi cab at the northern corner of Bond Street, she felt herself fairly safe afoot for Piccadilly, unless indeed, always with her a possibility, the streets during the past night should have been dissolved and crystallized anew, and her reason insisted further that she had fully thraced the time the walk needed, so with her mind tolerably at rest she took her way at leisure among the other leisurely well-groomed men and women. She went gazing with discretion, now at the people who fascinated her by their sophisticated faces and movements, now at the jeweled windows of the shops, now at the pure and quivering sky that arched itself like an iridescent bubble over many-masted London. And once not so long ago, she had hated this same London. On the brief visit before her marriage and upon her return as a widow, during the few days spent with Georgie, it had oppressed her almost to death. But now Lewis had given it to her like a plaything, and she carried always in her breast a secret talisman of passion. It was hers, all hers. The mounting sky, the decorous people, the precious stuffs, the gold and silver and rubies brought together from the ends of the earth. Only a trifling accident of circumstances prevented her from laying immediate hands upon those of her treasures which she most fancied at the moment. Her essential knowledge of possession was no whit disturbed by the unimportant fact that behind any of these shining panes she would be asked to pay money before she might carry her own goods away. 
Not all the riches of Solomon will buy such a sense of possession. Besides in money, also Joanna felt herself rich. She had come to London with a hundred pounds, part her own savings, part a gift from her mother, and for the present she was being allowed as well seven pounds a month. Soon she would be able to write home and declare herself independent of this. From the first by keeping in touch with her Glasgow employer, the Draper, irregular sums had come her way. And lately, through one of Carl's London introductions, a new and steadier means of earning had presented itself. This involved the sketching of dresses at the theater, a pursuit bringing with it considerable excitement. For Joanna, the theater was still easily carried away by the glittering show of the world there spread so cunningly before her. It was the theater rather than the play that affected her. And so it was with the more experienced Lewis. Did they go together, it was to musical comedy. Joanna had no choice, and Lewis, with only occasional lapses into boredom, liked the music, the prettiness, the absurdity, the deliverance from contact with reality there to be found. Also, he would point out how much more grateful to the eye the audience is attending this kind of piece. Afterwards, they would quarrel happily over the catchy tunes. No, you go wrong there. This is how it went. Lewis would cry, clapping his hands over Joanna's mouth. Ta, ra, ra, titty, itty, itty, um, a tum, and she would dispute it until at length they got it right between them with a warm, unbounded sense of friendship. There, just as Joanna came within sight of the Piccadilly traffic, a piano organ struck up one of the airs she and Lewis had first heard together four months ago at the Gaiety. Since then, how many recollections must that same refrain, repetitive as the call of a bird, have stored within itself for a thousand scattered lovers? To Joanna, it recalled every least incident of their return from the theater, that breathless midsummer night when the stars had been like a million golden bees swarming into the dark hive of the sky. And now, drawing nearer and nearer to the end of Bond Street, walking more and more slowly, vibrating with greater and greater violence to the surety that Lewis, if not already there, was hastening towards the place, Joanna felt afraid. The passers-by must see her, thought she, moving among them like a blazing torch dangerous to their safety. And seeing her so, would they not contrive to put her out of being? She had the real fear that they would, but even if they did not, must she not herself be consumed? Must she not unhindered shoot upwards, a mere dissolving flame? End of section 24